If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're going to begin in verse 23. By the way, is that not incredible worship? So grateful. So grateful for our choir and our orchestra do a wonderful job. Am I the only one that thought it was funny that Pastor Jim was frightened by his own picture? That's funny. (laughs) Matthew 22 this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 23, look down through uh, verse 46. You'll remember we're in the final week of Jesus' life. We're on the Tuesday of Jesus' final week. And he is in the temple area. And we've seen that the crowds um, are excited. Uh, They are picturing Christ as the conquering Messiah. They're hoping he's going to free them from the bondage of the Romans when in reality came to free them from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. They don't get it. They don't understand. But they're excited. There's another group. Uh, A small percentage of the group, the religious leadership, they can't stand Christ. They hate him. And now that he's come on their turf, uh, they're all over him. They're attacking him with questions, questions that aren't intended to, to gain knowledge, but questions that are intended to in some way trip him up. And uh, if you've ever been in a situation where you're in front of a group of people and you're being uh, questioned, uh, it can be exhausting, I, I think, of even the debates and how difficult it must be for those people to prepare to get questions about which they don't know. I mean, it can be exhausting. And I, one of the things that scares me is a, just an open forum Q&A on biblical things. I'm afraid everybody's going to figure out I'm a dummy and I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, but, but it's a scary thought. Uh, we, when we were in Africa, we, um, we would go out in the mornings, we'd do some evangelism, and then we'd invite people back to the church. And uh, when I say church, I'm just talking about a tree with some shade and some tarps, but, but they'd, uh, they'd invite the people back, and those people would start showing up, and Pastor David Kaya would be there waiting for them. And when they get there, some of them uh, already church members, some of them we'd lead to faith in Christ, but they would, they would just begin uh, asking questions of Pastor David, and it was amazing to me. I mean, they'd ask these questions that, that were not easy questions, and Pastor David, he'd been doing this for a long time, and he was just answering those questions. At one point, one of the guys, though, asked, um, uh, Pastor David, could you explain the Trinity to us? And Pastor David said, well, Pastor Chad, I think this is a great question for you. <laughs> and uh, man, I was trying to slip out. <laughs> How do I get out of, uh, get out of this one? Well, here, just think about this, though. You have here, you have Jesus. And you have the greatest minds of his day. These are the the trained, the educated, the theologically trained. These are the guys that are certified. They have spent their life studying the word of God. And here they are, and they're grilling Jesus with, with some of the most difficult questions that they can possibly think up in their mind. And in every instance, I love this, Jesus never bats an eye. He never flinches. None of this even remotely begins to catch him off guard. And in every instance, he will answer with absolute certainty and absolute authority. Only God does this. And just as it is in all of Jesus' life, everything he does, even the answering of these questions, is a demonstration that he is God. And yet they can't see it. Their sin, their pride has blinded them. They're so close to the Savior of the world. They're going to miss him. 
Well, I pray this morning we don't miss Christ and his beauty and his glory this morning as we study uh, his word. So let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. God, each week as we come together corporately to open your word, we, we, we recognize that this is no ordinary book. This is your very word to us. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey this morning, that we might understand the principles of your word and we would apply them to, your li- to our lives, that, that we might not simply be hearers of the word, but doers also. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me in verse 23. It says, on that same day, uh, 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 on that day, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. So we've got another group. We've seen the Pharisees. We've seen the Herodians. We've seen the scribes. We've seen the elders. We've seen the chief priests. All these different groups keep coming to Jesus. And again, we see another group, the Sadducees. Now they're coming. They're going to take their turn. What's interesting about this is all these groups, they never really got along with one another. They couldn't stand each other, and yet they'll come together united in a common desire to see Christ silenced. And so here comes the Sadducees. The question is, who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were the uh, kind of the wealthy. They were the elite, the upper class of the Jewish culture. Uh, they, um, they were the, the aristocrats of that culture. The Pharisees were much more of the commoners, much larger group. The Sadducees were a smaller group of, of men. They, were, they oversaw the, the, the priests and, and the temple. They, they were money changers. In fact, these are probably the guys that Jesus kicked out of the temple area. And that's how they made their money. That's how they became wealthy. They became wealthy off of the people by uh, giving to them these huge exchange rates and they would make money off of it. So you can understand why they didn't like Jesus very much. He's put them out of business. Uh, not only were they the, the wealthy, the elite, theologically they were very, very conservative. Um, in fact, you might call them fundamental. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They only believed in the Pentateuch. And anything outside of the Pentateuch, anything outside of the law of Moses, they were very skeptical of. They, they didn't lend any weight towards anything outside of Moses. Which is why they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in heaven or hell or angels or demons because Moses didn't talk about it. And so it was an argument from omission, meaning since Moses didn't talk about it, it must not be that big of a deal or it must not exist. So we're not going to believe in it. We don't lend any credibility to anything that exists outside of uh, the law of Moses. And, and so you can understand with the Pharisees, they did believe in a resurrection. They did believe in angels and, and demons and heaven and hell. They believed in those things. And so it created this conflict, this animosity. But the greatest point of contention was the issue of the resurrection. That was the issue that was often the wedge between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had this pet question that they would always use when it came to the argument, when they'd get in this argument about the resurrection, they'd always uh, appeal to this one question that they'd throw out to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees couldn't give an adequate rebuttal. It always stumped to the Pharisees. They didn't know how to respond to it. And so there in minds, they probably think, well, the Pharisees can't ever get it right. Let's see how Jesus does with this. Let's throw it out to Christ, see what he does with this question. So look at the question, verses 24 through 28. And they came to him asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. 
And uh, I don't know about you, at first I read this, I think any man that's willing to marry a woman who's outlived six other husbands, something ain't right there, you know. Um, the writing's on the wall, you take a hint. Um, dangerous woman, by the way. But, uh, but you, you know, all joking aside, it is, it is an absurd argument. I mean, you, you look at this and you think, that how long did it, come up, did it take for him to come up with this kind of uh, absurd scenario to try to refute the, the reality of a resurrection. Their argument essentially was that, that, that the resurrection is going to create, if you believe in a resurrection, it's going to create all kinds of goofy relational issues in the afterlife. That it's going to create, uh, how are we going to be married? How are we going to relate to one another? And God's not big enough to handle that, so we're just going to throw it out, and there is no resurrection. And this idea of, uh, you know, of the brother uh, marrying his, his uh, brother's wife, if he deceased, this is, a, it's called Leverite Law. It's in Deuteronomy 25. It was part of the law. Uh, it was your responsibility as a brother. If your, your brother's wife passed away, you, uh, you, you fulfilled that responsibility so that your brother would continue to carry on the family line. Um, in fact, if you didn't fulfill that responsibility as a brother, uh, it, kind of an odd scenario, but they would make you take off your sandal and they'd spit in your face. It sounds a little extreme, but, but if you think about it, if you've read the book of Ruth, what happens in the book of Ruth when uh, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer next of kin? He's going to go do, you know, he, he's got an obligation here and he seeks to find if there's somebody else that's more closely related to her and there is and that man doesn't want to do it and it talks about the exchange of sandals. It kind of brings some light to that situation, doesn't it? That's the Leverite law. That's what's going on here. So it was a legitimate law, but it was a highly unlikely scenario. So resurrection going to create all kinds of relational problems for God to kind of sort through. Well, look at the response of Jesus in verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus looks at these guys and says, you don't even know your Bibles. Now, how insulting must have that been? These guys prided themselves on their knowledge of God's word. You don't understand your Bible, nor do you understand the power of God. And then he's going to explain to them these two things. First of all, he'll explain the power of God. Look in verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he says, first off, she's not going to be anybody's wife because there's no marriage in heaven. Now, when I say that, for some of you, that's very difficult to hear. No marriage in heaven. Others of you, that's one of the perks of heaven. <laughs> we were uh, talking about this a couple weeks ago. I was talking with Pastor Jim, and he said, oh, that's good, because I'm sure Sue didn't want to show up in heaven and say, I'm stuck with him for all eternity. Um, so I don't know. We feel pretty sympathetic towards Sue about that as well, but... And then Pastor Bill said, well, if there's no marriage, that means there's no in-laws. So we got that going for us, too. But... That's your pastoral staff, folks. I don't... I don't know what that says about them. Pray for them. Pray for me. But, but just kind of putting joking aside for a second. Um, because quite honestly, I, don't know, I love my wife. And uh, that's difficult to hear. No marriage. But we need to remember that when we get to that point, we will exist in all the fullness of God's glory. And the reality is when I get to that moment of existing in the fullness of all of God's glory, when my wife gets there, I'm just going to be excess baggage at that point. I would just be a distraction. 
You remember in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us there what the primary purpose of marriage was. You remember Paul tells us the primary of marriage is to paint a picture, an illustration here on earth of the beautiful, beautiful relationship that exists between Christ and his people. He says, that's, that's, this mystery is great, Paul says, but I'm speaking in relationship to Christ and the church. You know that today, that your marriage is intended to be evangelistic? That your marriage is to paint a picture of how beautiful this relation is between Christ and his people. But one day, listen, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that picture will come to fruition. And when we know the fullness of that marriage between Christ and his people, the earthly institution of marriage will become obsolete at that moment. That this earthly institution will be consumed, this symbol will be consumed in the substance of Christ as we exist in his glory. And so, no marriage. He says, we'll be like angels. Now, we got to be careful here because that doesn't mean that we become angels. Um, this does not mean that when we die, we, we become an angel. There's, there's some people uh, that will, will talk about that. You, that, that. That's not biblical. There are angels and then there are humans. You, know, you guys know I love the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, but there's no Clarence trying to earn his wings. It doesn't happen that way. There's angels and there's humans. But when he says we're like angels, what he means there is angels don't marry. There's no marriage angels and no uh, procreation among the angels. There's, there's, so we'll be like them in that way that there's no marriage. And, and I want to encourage you today that we won't become angels, but we will be changed. You know, one of the difficulties that the Sadducees had when it came to the resurrection was not just that Moses never talked about it, but one of the difficulties they had with the resurrection is the idea of this sinful flesh somehow existing in the fullness of God's glory. How can that occur? How can this sinful flesh, this body, somehow inherit the kingdom of God? And to some extent, they're right about that, aren't they? That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You remember Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And he says, it goes on to say, this, this perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. This mortal cannot inherit immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in life. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then know this today. We're all going to go to the grave, put into the ground a physical body. But we will be raised a spiritual body perfected in a heavenly place with God forever. If that doesn't excite you, something's wrong. You know, Philippians chapter 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate. Can I get an amen on the body of our humble estate? But he's going to transform it into conformity with his glory according to his power, which he has to subject all things to himself, meaning God. This is no issue for God. The power of God is going to take these bodies, and we're going to be transformed, and we're going to be made new. We're going to be given, given a spiritual body. The, our flesh today, do we not struggle with our flesh? It opposes the will of God at every turn. We have hearts that want to obey. We have a flesh that doesn't. But one day we're going to get a new body that walks in perfect fellowship with God. So be encouraged today, though the outer man might be decaying, 
The inner man is being renewed day by day for our light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he addresses the power of God issues. This is no problem for God. No, there's not going to be marriage anyway. We're going to exist in the fullness of God. He's going to transform our bodies. But then he addresses the scriptural basis. They don't understand the word. Look at verses 31 through 32. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus here quotes from one of the books of the Bible that they actually do read and study, which is Exodus. And in Exodus chapter three, verse six, you remember God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And he says, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at that moment, did you know that Abraham had been dead for over 500 years? Do you see what God is telling Moses all the way back in the book of Exodus? He's saying, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they ain't really dead. And they will be raised. God was telling Moses all the way back in Exodus about the reality of the resurrection. It was right there in the word and they had missed it. Do you know what I think that the mistake these Sadducees had made? Same trap, if we're not careful, we'll fall into. They had gotten to a place of arrogance in their knowledge of God's word that when they went to the word of God to study and read the word of God, they weren't looking for God to teach them. They were looking for evidence to back up what they thought they already knew. Folks, that's when you're in a bad place spiritually. When you open the word of God and you're not coming with a heart of humility, God, I don't know. I need you to teach me, instruct me more about who you are. But more often than not, we come with our presuppositions and we're just simply looking for evidence to back up what we already believe. That's why, you know, when I study the word each week, I pray, God, save me from what I think I already know. And teach me William Booth, founder of Salvation Army, he used to, when he would get to preach, he'd say, every week he'd look at a text, and I identify that this so much, he would read through the text and say, I got nothing. And he said he would have to lay the Bible out on the floor, and he'd get on his knees, and he'd say, God, teach me. you got to instruct me. you got to make this book alive to me. It's a very dangerous place when you get to a place of pride and studying the Word of God, thinking you've got it all figured out. That was the danger they had. So here Jesus answers a question pertaining to the afterlife, the resurrection. He answers without hesitation, with absolute certainty. These are no problems for God. And look at the reaction of the crowds in verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were amazed at his teaching. And then the Pharisees, you'll see in verses 34 through 35, they see that the The Sadducees are silenced, and they want another go. So look at verses 34, 35. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, asking him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You know, the Pharisees were infatuated with the law. Boy, they studied it inside and out. They had determined that in the law there were actually 613 laws, and they'd gathered out all these specific laws, and then they had divided them between positive laws and negative laws. They saw 365 positive laws and 248 negative laws or laws of negation, and then of those laws they had further uh, delineated between the, the laws that were weighty and the ones that were light, the ones that were really important, the ones that were maybe of lesser importance, and there was a constant discussion about which law was really important, which ones do we have to obey, which ones really demonstrate the heart of God, and so they had this controversy, this constant discussion, 
question, they think, well, let's just ask Jesus. Sure, certainly, he's got some paradigm through which he studies the Old Testament law. So let's ask him, what do you think? What's the greatest commandment? And again, it's just amazing to me, Jesus, right away. He doesn't say, well, let me think about it and get back to you next week. Shoot me an email. I'll see what I can do. He says, no, without hesitation, with absolute authority, this is the greatest commandment. And he quotes from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And this was a passage that they knew dearly. They recited it daily. In fact, a lot of them put it on boxes on their foreheads. They kept it in front of them all the time. They knew this. And Jesus quotes that verse to remind them that more than anything else, God wants your heart. Not just your heart, but he wants all your heart. These guys had missed the forest for the trees. They'd become so focused on external laws and religious activity that, what, that they forgot that what God really wants is you. He wants you to love him with all your heart. Because God knows when he's got our heart, the rest will follow. You know, I really see this in, in David as he writes the psalm. David was a, a man after God's own heart. And here was a guy who just loved God, in fact, believe it's in Psalm 27 where he says this one, one thing I've asked and I shall continually seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Man, you read David and you see a guy, a guy who just loved God. He wasn't perfect. In fact, you get to Psalm 51. You remember after his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 comes about and he says, says what? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You know what he's saying there? You can do whatever you want to me, but I can't lose you. I got to have you. I love you. In fact, at the end of that psalm, he'll say, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise Listen, at the heart of Christianity really is that. It's a heart that deeply loved God, recognizing what he's done for us, who he is. You know, there's so much emphasis put on, and we're, we have to watch this. I know I do, because there's so much emphasis put on right doctrine and right thinking, and that is important. Don't mishear me this morning. It's extremely important, but it's not just about right thinking. It's about a heart that just deeply loves God. That that's what the essence of 1 Corinthians 13, that you can have all the knowledge of the, in the world. You can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can have not all knowledge. You can have great faith. But if you don't have love, what does Paul say? It means nothing. That the essence of this is a people that what identifies us as Christians is a people who just love God. It's not a bunch of knowledge in our head or rules that we follow. We're a people that love God with all our heart. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, man, I'm convicted. Do I love God with all my heart? That's what he wants. Not a bunch of religious activity and checking of the boxes. He wants to know, do you really love me? And then he takes it a step further. He, verses 39 through 40, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So now it really gets difficult because it's not just about loving God. It's about how do you treat people. And you can't love God and not love people. 
So many Christians out there, they, they, they say, well, I love God. But boy, some of them are the most hurtful, hateful people I've ever been around. Grumpy as all get out. I don't want to be around them. And you can tell me all day you love God. But if you don't love people, something's wrong. That's the indicator. This is how it gets verifiable. Anybody can say, I love God. There's no way to really verify that. Well, they love God. That's great. They make a great claim. But you want to know if you really love God, the question is, how are you treating people? You know, the people of God are those who have been changed from the inside out. They got this all backwards, and, and we do too. I think sometimes we think, well, we're, you know, we try to impress God with the external religion, think he's going to love us more if we do a bunch of good deeds, and a lot of people are just out there saying, I'm going to really, you know, I'm going to do more, I'm going to do all this. Well, what God really wants is our hearts. And it's a heart that's been changed by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that overflows unto our external life where we begin to love people and treat people differently. How many of you, you know, when you gave your life to Christ, when you come to, came to faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you began wanting things and loving things you'd never loved before? I love seeing this in a new believer. They'll tell me, well, I came to faith in Christ. I've been reading the Word of God every day. I'll say, prior to faith in Christ, did you ever have just a deep desire to read the Word of God? Not once. But all of a sudden now, I can't get enough of it. And new believers, you know what I found? Oftentimes, they always want to be at the church. And I'll ask them, at any time prior to faith in Christ, did you just have a deep desire to be at church all the time? Nope. What happened? They were transformed from the inside out. They got a new heart. And the external followed. But what do we want to do? We want to clean up the external to impress God, hoping, hoping that somehow it'll change our hearts. It doesn't work that way. It comes by a recognition that you can't do it. You trust in Christ. He changes you from the inside out, and then it works its way in an out, outwardly in how we treat other people. So two questions, difficult questions. Resurrection, heart of the law. Jesus responds without hesitation, total authority. And then Jesus will conclude with, with his own question. Look at verses 41 through 45. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. So Jesus says, just throws it out to them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Sounds a little bit like Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? What do you think about the Christ? Now, you have to understand that, that almost all of them agreed that the Messiah would be a descendant of David as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He will be an earthly descendant of David. They had no problem with that. But not all of them believed that the Messiah would be God. They knew he'd be a great leader. They knew he's going to lead us out of bondage. We know he's going to be a descendant of David. We're not sure about this whole God thing. And Jesus is going to tell them it's not enough to believe that he's a descendant of David. That doesn't go far enough. The Messiah is not just a descendant of David. He's God himself. And what he does is he quotes from Psalm 110 to show them that David believed in a divine Messiah. So look at what he says in verse 43. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, when David referred to the Messiah, he referred to him as Lord. 
So David believed in a Messiah who was not just one of his descendants. David believed in a Messiah who was not just a great leader. David believed in a Messiah who is God and would come and live a perfect life because he is God and die for our sins and conquer the grave thereby by providing a way of salvation. Isn't that amazing? David was a Christian. It's amazing. I mean, in fact, when you read Psalm 16, uh, David says in Psalm 16, my, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And Peter quotes that in Acts chapter 2, first Christian sermon ever. And he proclaims it to the Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem. And he says when David talks about the Holy One who would not undergo decay, he wasn't talking about himself. Because David did undergo decay. In fact, Peter says, you want to go down the road? We can go look at his tomb. We can dig up his dead body if you want. He's dead. He wasn't trusted. Murderers and adulterers don't tend to trust in themselves for salvation. David looked forward towards a Christ who would come, who is God, who would die and defeat the grave and conquer the grave, sin, Satan, and death so that we would have a way of salvation. Isn't that amazing? So, so Jesus looks at these guys and says, you got a hard time recognizing that the Messiah is God, but David sure didn't. You love David. And David recognized that the Messiah would be divine and he would conquer the grave. And at this, he puts the, you know, look all the way down in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare <laughs> from that day on to ask him any other questions. They're done with the questions now. But again, it's so amazing to me. Jesus, in the next chapter in Matthew 23, boy, he's going to get pretty rough with these guys. It's going to come a word of condemnation. But up to this point, you continue to see the patient persistence of Christ, don't you? They're so close. They're so close. In fact, in Mark's gospel, the, the, the lawyer that asked the question, do you know what Jesus says to him? He says, you're not far from the kingdom. He looks at that lawyer. He says, boy, you got some knowledge. Man, you know the word. And you are so close. But boy, these these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they had made a grave mistake. You know what they had done? They had diminished the holiness of God and they had exalted their own righteousness. They had brought the law that was intended to show them that they are sinners and they can't measure up. Anybody here today hear that that what God really wants is you to love him with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself and not feel a little convicted this morning? If you don't feel a little convicted, something's wrong. This law that was intended to show them that they don't measure up, they had brought it down to an attainable level. They had brought the holiness of God down to a level that they could attain and thereby they could pat themselves on their back when they attained it and they had exalted their own righteousness. That God isn't that holy and we're pretty good. And some of you are in danger of making the same mistake today. There's so many people out there that think, you know, God's a nice, loving God, and surely I'm trying hard. I've done some good stuff. Surely he's going to let me in. Do you know what you've done? You're thinking way too low about the holiness of God, and you're thinking way too high about your own righteousness. You've made the same mistake as these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Listen, God is loving, but he's also holy. 
And in light of his holiness, none of us in this room measure up. We are dead to rights. We are all guilty. And there is no plan B. And what these guys were intended to see is that we're sinners and this guy's holy. And they were to be humbled and recognize we need forgiveness. What they should have done at that moment was cry out to God for forgiveness. Now, I love this quote. Um, heard this quote from Alistair Begg this week. He said this. I love this. He said, the degree to which you see your need of forgiveness is the measure to which you understand the gospel. Let me state that again. The degree to which you understand your need of forgiveness is the measure to which you understand the gospel. Meaning, if you come in here week in and week out, you come through those doors, and you hear us proclaim the word of God and the truth of God and who he is, and you say to yourself, boy, that's some good stuff, practical stuff, might even be beneficial and justifiable for my life. But you can hear this week in and week out and walk out those doors and never once Cry out to God for forgiveness. Can I tell you? You're close, but you've missed the gospel. See, we look at this stuff and all of us know, apart from Christ's forgiveness, we're all without hope. You know what's interesting? At the end of this day, Jesus' time in the temple on Tuesday, do you know how it will conclude? He's going to be in the area of giving, and he's going to see one woman in this area where everybody would throw their coins in to make a bunch of noise to let everybody look at them and see how good they are. They were really impressed with their own righteousness. In fact, they'd go to throw their coins in. Oftentimes, if they were really wealthy, these Sadducees, they would have a guy blow a trumpet. Here he is. Look how righteous he is. He got lots of nickels, you know, and they'd throw in their coins. and, And there's one lady, a widow. And she takes a mite and she throws it in that trumpet. Would have not even made a sound. And Jesus grabs his guys and says, guys, you got to come here. That woman gave more than anybody else. How in the world did that woman give more than anybody else? Because she gave everything she had. You know what he's saying to his guys? That's it. That's what God's looking for. A person who recognized that I have nothing apart from God. I got nothing to offer to God. My only hope is his forgiveness. And in light of what he's done for, him, for me, I give everything back to him. All my heart, everything I have goes back to him. I love him and I'm willing to give him everything because he gave everything for me. That's what God's looking for. Where are you at today? Are you thinking too low of God's holiness and too high of your righteousness? Or have you come to a place today of realizing That just like all of us, you're a sinner and your only hope is Jesus. If that's you today, there's grace in their forgiveness. There was grace and forgiveness for these guys if they'd have just turned to Christ. He never turned anybody away who came to him with a true heart of repentance. And if that's your heart today, he won't turn you away. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. As I read this this passage, I... um, Every time I read this passage about these Pharisees and these Sadducees and how they were attacking Jesus, I'm reminded that they were your enemies. They hated, they didn't want anything to do with you. They wanted to get you out of their lives. But then I'm reminded, (laughs) prior to faith in Christ, I was in the same position. I was your enemy. I was a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. And yet you love me anyway. 
and you patiently and persistently pursued me just as you did these religious leaders. And there might be somebody here this morning that maybe they came to this place and they've been turned off by the things of God, but you've been pursuing them. God, I pray that you would show them the depth of their need, the depth of their sinfulness, but I pray that you'd also show them the beauty of their Savior Jesus who died for them. Your word says it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. I pray that you would so overwhelm them with your love, your grace, that they couldn't help but run to you this morning to know your forgiveness, your salvation, and your freedom. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Christ and know his forgiveness. We'll have pastors here at the front. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family, become a member of Lenexa Baptist Church. Maybe you just want to pray here. This is your time. Know today you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.